Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. We have a great interview coming up for you with the executive director of the Internet Infrastructure Coalition. What I love about this interview and why I specifically chose Christian as one of the first to be released is because he spends all of his time lobbying on behalf of our industry, the data center industry, ISPs, network service providers, hosting companies, and he, he literally spends his time all day, every day, working with congressmen and women and their staffers, educating them and teaching them about what is actually happening in our space and how the different legislation that's pushing through Congress affects people like you and me in the industry today. Fascinating human being, fascinating backstory is also how he got to doing what he's doing today. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed interviewing him. And I also hope subliminally that you guys will get yourselves involved with the Internet Infrastructure Coalition in some capacity because they are doing some pretty awesome work. So without further ado, I will let you dive into this awesome interview with Christian Dawson with the Internet Infrastructure Coalition. All right, Christian Dawson, thank you, my friend, for for joining us here on I love data centers. I appreciate you taking the time. Sean, thanks for very much for having me here. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. So for those who who don't know you as well as I do, I'd love to know two things. And let me just start with the first question. Wh- where are you right now? Like, where are you physically? I am physically in Washington, D.C. I'm about, uh, I don't know, three or four blocks from our nation's capital. Right on. And I think, are you working on a WeWork? I've got a little five-person studio here at WeWork where, where we are running uh, the Internet Infrastructure Coalition. And what, what for those who are joining us and don't know who the Internet Infrastructure Coalition is, what, what is the I2C? The I2C is an organization that basically has all the data centers, web hosting providers, uh, registries, registrars, the people that rack and stack servers and data centers. We bring them all together. And we give them a singular voice for policy issues to make sure that the industry continues to survive, survive and thrive. We're a policy house. So that raises a, a question that at least I always have is as to what motivates and drives people. But you, you, am I correct in that you founded the I2C? I was a co-founder of the group with David Sneed, uh, who has, is a longtime industry lawyer. Uh, we did it about four years ago. 
And what drew, what motivated you to stop doing what you were doing and move full time into policy work in in DC for the industry? So uh, that's it's a very good story. It's kind of a long one, but uh, I'll try to make it as short as possible. Basically, uh, just from right out of college, I joined the web hosting industry. Uh, me and my best friend in college started a web hosting company, and uh, I was doing that since around 1998. Uh, we went through lots of ups and downs, had a lot of incredible experiences, and um, around actually five years ago now, uh, my lawyer at the time, who was David Sneed, he pointed me in the direction of this piece of legislation called PIPA, or the Protect IP Act, uh, and we started getting really worried that this bill, uh, PIPA, uh, and then it's, it's Senate sister bill, uh, SOPA, Pippa and SOPA, we're going to do really bad things for this industry. Um, and nobody in our industry was really talking about it. So we started talking about it. We started going to conferences and chatting with people who were also very concerned about Pippa and SOPA. Eventually, we were able to uh, take a lot of important actions around that bill and ended up having a positive effect in getting those uh, both Pippa and SOPA uh, shut down uh, and so that they didn't move forward. Through that process, we sort of realized that there wasn't a group out there that was speaking out for the data center industries and industry and all the, pe- all the uh, people that build the internet's infrastructure within data centers. So we decided to build one. So I know, I know PIPA and SOPA is, is pretty complicated of an issue, but can you briefly break down what PIPA and SOPA actually amounted to and also put some, put some context from a timing perspective on those, both those bills? Sure. So uh, we're talking about uh, about five years ago, and these were bills that were formulated predominantly by uh, lobbyists from the MPAA and RIAA who were trying to address piracy. Hold on, hold on. So I know yeah. I know you're in DC, Christian, and I know you guys <laughs> throw these acronyms around all the time. But... Okay, okay, okay. Um, the MPA is the Motion Picture Association of America, and the RIA is the Recording Industry Association of America. These are two organizations who want to look out for the movie industry and recording industry. And piracy is a real problem online; it genuinely is. So they got together with legislators and tried to figure out how they can positively address uh, piracy and make a dent in it so that uh, they could have better success uh, with their business models. The problem is that the way that they decided to go about this was to uh, erode what's called uh, third-party identification, which is the idea that like the people who provide tools um, that fit in between um, a person and how they use that tool is not directly responsible for what happens with the use of that tool. Um, unless it's something is brought to their attention, in which case they need to be lawful in how they address uh, dealing with the specific issue that's brought to their attention. Otherwise, you can't be held culpable for something that happens, for instance, in your data center. Um, Pippa and Silva were going to make it so that the people that ran data centers, the people that ran, ran web hosting companies, we're ultimately either going to need to agree to pre-monitor all content that went on or through their networks uh, or accept enough legal liability that it was going to make it so that the way that the uh, hosting and the cloud industry was going to work was going to end up being a lot uh, very similar to how like the patent system works right now. The patent system is very broken and it's very easy to sue and get tremendous damages 
for uh, patent infringement. So you get to a point where it's it's really hard to be an inventor. It was going to be really hard to be a cloud company, and you'd get an environment where only the large could survive. Here's the thing, though. Like right now, there are like 35,000 companies in the Internet's infrastructure just in the U.S. alone, more like 60,000 globally. Most of them are small to medium businesses. Most of them could not survive the erosion of intermediate reliability uh, or or survive having to be forced to monitor content on their networks. So the whole when, when internet you say, would change significantly. When you say 60,000, does that mean 60,000 like hosting companies? And, and like, what does that 60,000 entity entail? Who, who makes up that audience? It's, so we're talking about uh, the people in the quote unquote internet infrastructure industry. So the cloud companies, the people that rack and stack servers and da- uh, data centers. I include in that cloud infrastructure providers, data centers, registries, registrars, web hosting providers. Gotcha. Which is most of the now membership for the I2C. It exactly. It exactly. Can you just, so our audience has a clear understanding, like what are some of the, the names of the companies that are currently part of I2C? So we have a lot of uh, the largest and most influential companies in this space. We've got, uh, um, Equinix and VeriSign and GoDaddy and Amazon and, and, and Google, like a lot of the name brands, Rackspace, uh, Endurance International. Um, we've also got a lot of small organizations, companies that you may not be that familiar with and may have not have heard of, uh, small companies like Hedgehog Hosting. My own company uh, that I started uh, with my um, best friend in college, out of college, Servant, um, was around a 60-person organization. And that's typical of a lot of web hosting companies. We wanted to make sure that we built an organization that was a voice for the smaller companies. So one of the cool things that I know you guys do are things called fly-ins. And I'd love to have you kind of explain what what that entails. And I know there's going to be a little bit different of a format coming up, which I'm actually super excited about. So kind of talking through what you've traditionally done and what what's going to be a little bit different this time, I think would be interesting for our audience. That's awesome. Okay, great. Yeah, well, we do have a fly-in coming up uh, um, May 2nd and 3rd of 2017. Uh, a fly-in entails putting out a call to our members to say, come join us in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've developed all these relationships with legislators in um, our nation's capital, and we want them to hear from you, not just from us. You know, I no longer am running a web hosting company on a day-to-day basis. So I don't have the authority that, you know, Sean, you have, uh, being able to talk about your business and in your, from your specific perspective. So once a year, we come in and we figure out how we can push our legislative agenda forward through a series of meetings that happen directly with our members on Capitol Hill. Traditionally, we've done two days of meetings um, with Congress people, uh, Senate staffers, And uh, this year, we're also adding a bunch of uh, meetings at the executive branch level. So we'll be talking to uh, people in important positions of power in the Commerce Department and um, potentially other departments as well, as necessary. Cool. How many members are currently in ITC today? How many member companies? We, We are around 100 member companies right now. And we are constantly looking to expand 
uh, the more we uh, get new member companies on board, the more that we can do. And what we're doing is for the good of the industry. This is, uh, it's not just insurance that bad stuff doesn't happen to your company um, because bad legislation doesn't eat it up, but we also are a great networking opportunity. We're a great, through stuff like our fly-in and our I2 Brew series, which goes around the world, um, we're a great source for uh, basically showcasing that you're one of the good guys of the internet and being a part of a pretty impressive community. I think I'm one of the founding, founding members of the ITC back in the day, back in 2012, 2013-ish. Um, because I have a, you know, one of my hobbies is political science, and it was one of my majors. I was a poli sci and econ double major in college, so I'm constantly tracking the political side of things. And my twin sister, I have a twin sister who happened to actually live and work in D.C. for many, many years as a lobbyist herself. So I became remotely familiar with how that uh, that world operated. I found it always fascinating that it was twenty somethings who really ran the show for congressmen and women as it relates to issues uh, that were being voted on in bills. And so when I saw, Christian, what you were doing with the Internet Infrastructure Coalition in D.C., trying to present a voice for the likes of mom-and-pop hosting companies and smaller, not just smaller, but just data center companies, understanding that so few people even get what the data center industry is and how it works and operates and that <laughs> that data centers actually run the brave new digital world that we live in today and that there's no such thing as cloud. It's actually those 60,000 companies that you mentioned earlier that that run the internet, um, that we, we are what runs the internet. We need to start educating congressmen and women who are voting uh, and their staffers so that we can actually affect change. And it was the fly-in that I participated in last year. What, when was that fly-in? Uh, I think that we did it pretty early. We, we did it in March of last year, uh, and we're yeah. doing May this year. Yeah. It was still pretty so cold in March, then. Yeah, it was definitely still a little cold. So in March of last year, I remember flying in, and we spent two days running around the hill, sitting down with staffers and congresspeople. And for the first time, I walked away. Again, because my, my background in political science, I... I've gotten involved very much in local politics, so local city council meetings, economic development meetings and whatnot, and seen the ability to affect change on a very small local level. But for the first time ever, I was in D.C. with lobbyists, walking around, meeting congressmen and staffers, and finally felt for the first time that I, what I actually felt and my opinions were actually being heard, and not just heard, but could actually affect change. And that's what I think the most powerful value proposition the I2C has that I want people to know uh, is that it provides a voice that can affect change, right? And I, I mean, you see that and live that day in, day out. So, you know, do you have any stories maybe that speak to uh, that change being a tangible, real thing affected through through the work that you're doing? You know, um, most of the stories that I have are super little things that could end up being big things if if they were left unattended to. It's the staffer that calls me up first thing on a Monday morning that says, you know, hey, my boss is considering being a co-sponsor on this, you know, bad legislation. If if he doesn't sign on, this isn't going anywhere. I need you to explain to me exactly what an IXP is so I know whether we need to do a regulation on IXPs. Oh, okay. Uh, 
let's start our, our Monday morning by talking about internet exchange points. That's fantastic. Um, and then that doesn't, and then we end up making sure that that gets pointed in the right direction. These things, because you're there as a resource, because you're there doing these this, this work, uh, you get to make sure that the whole industry uh, ends up having a voice as these things are being decided. And like, there there isn't much more important right now to the economy or a way of life to the internet, and it's still very much in its infancy, infancy at least the commercial internet. So it feels as though we are in a brave new world, uncharted territory, and being one of the people who gets to stand at the forefront of trying to explain it to people as they're trying to sort out what needs to happen, uh, it feels good. It feels like I'm making a difference. It's also made me more hopeful about sort of every aspect of politics because I feel like I'm getting listened to. I kind of think, okay, all these things that I don't have enough time, effort, and bandwidth to focus my attention on. I know that there's somebody like me in that field putting in an earnest effort day in and day out to make sure that the right, right things get done. Related to all that is a upcoming webinar that you're going to be hosting tomorrow. But by the time our readership gets this, it'll probably be a couple of weeks prior. So um, I'm going to use this as kind of a plug that anyone who's listening to this should go to the Internet Infrastructure Coalition uh, website and sign up as a membership, which is fairly reasonable dues and fees, or, or talk your company into doing it, and or sign up yourself and just expense it uh, so that you can listen to this, because there is going to be some information that only membership can can hear, but you're going to be doing, as I understand it, a basically a, a quorum, a forum around how the Trump administration uh, is going to affect the different issues that are related to the data center industry and hosting industries, correct? Yeah, so we're taking all the information that we know to date about the decisions they've made, about what they're going to be focusing on and who their leadership they're, they're putting in place is and what their background is. And we're going to try and relate that to what we expect to see legislatively in the coming year and then how we intend to respond. We're basically laying out the whole game plan for the coming year for our members, and it should be really insightful and looking forward to it. Awesome. And we're, we're going to put some information related to both the I2C and this specific webinar in the show notes that are going to be uh, listed underneath the, the posting and download for the blog or on our blog for this specific podcast. So um, if you're listening to this, please go to the I Love Data Center section of our openspectrumink.com site, and you can find the in the show notes the different links to to that. Um, so now that I've got the the who you are and what you do and why you do it out of the way, I do I do have some data center related questions for you, Christian. If if you uh, can let me, would be so kind to let me lob some questions your way. Love it. Go for it. Awesome. So one of my first questions is: Do you remember your first experience walking into a data center, and where where were you, and what was the context? Well, so to answer that question, it really depends on what you constitute a data center. I can sort of give you a little bit of, uh, I'll explain, uh, I give you a bit of context as to um, how Servant was grown. So a friend of mine, my best friend in college, Reed Caldwell, uh, and I, um, he started talking about his idea to build a web hosting company. Um, and I didn't know much about web hosting, I didn't know much about really anything internet related. Uh, this was pretty early days, this is like 1995, he starts talking about this sort of thing. Um, 
we have extensive conversations about potentially doing this together until he decides that he is going to quit college um, and go on up and start servant in Northern Virginia, basically because we, he needed to be near the bandwidth. Uh, so found a, a tier one provider that he could basically get a 10 meg ethernet drop from and start to build a small data center in an office building. And I said, listen, what now, like, we were at the University of Richmond. University of Richmond, um, yeah. And he's like, leave college with me. We'll go ahead and start this. And I said, no, I'm going to go ahead and uh, stick it out. I'll come up and visit you on weekends. We'll work on stuff together, positioning, marketing, stuff like that. But I'm not... Basically, I let him take the initiative of, of starting this thing on his own. And the first data center that I ever walked into was ultimately in this utility closet <laughs> with an Ethernet drop, 10 meg Ethernet drop from a tier one provider that was in the building. Um, that ended up getting built into quite a impressive little um, little setup with, with multiple racks. It was, God, it was probably like three or four years into... You know, me then coming up and helping build the business with him and you know, being an ongoing employee, but still uh, uh, and co-founder, uh, junior co-founder, um, but still having the um, uh, data center right there in our office building for the first like four or five years before we moved to a proper facility that somebody else ran. And what's what's interesting and that most people don't. I mean, you brought up a very, I, I appreciate your response to that question, because what is a data center, right? A, right. a lot of people still constitute a, a closet with a couple servers in it as a data center. And in fact, to that point, uh, there are, according to the research that we've done, roughly 2.9 million data centers in the United States of America. And you might, you know, a lot of people hear that and be like, there's no way there's 2.9 million data centers. But when you look at it in the context of those closets, right, there there most sure. definitely are. And that's where, from, from my perspective in the data center industry, there is still a huge opportunity and huge potential migrating those workloads and those in that data uh, and those compute resources and applications out of people's closets and into mm -hmm. data centers. And whether that's with the infrastructure as a service company, the hosting company, or people who just want to physically move the gear into a data center, multi-tenant data center, doesn't matter. There's just a, still a ton of opportunity with so many companies and, and people running data center closets. So, but dig through that. So, so you went from that server closet to an actual production Great data center. Which which data center do you, do you recall? Which one that was? Uh, sure, we went. <laughs> we worked with a number of uh, of different providers. The very first big switch that we made, because we put a lot of time and effort into making sure that we had backup battery systems, that we had uh, generator systems. We really we were really proud of what we had built ourselves. Um, but we're not a data center. Uh, facility, and eventually we needed to spend their time focusing on the things that we were experts at, which was you know servers and system administration. Um, so eventually, we decided to make our first big move, and that was to a switch and data facility. We ended up moving from switch and data after a couple of years to uh, CRG, which became CoreSight. Uh, we went. We had two CRG facilities. Um, we were uh, first downtown 
in downtown DC uh, on K Street. Then we migrated out to um, Sunrise Valley Drive in Reston, Virginia, and we simultaneously uh, picked up a second data center uh, uh, footprint at One Wilshire down in Los Angeles. Um, then we added on a third data center footprint in uh, Telecity 5 out in Amsterdam. So when you first walked into one of those facilities, was it something that, I mean, do you, do you remember that experience or was it just like, oh, okay, it's just, you know, I've, this is just a bigger version of the closet that, that we used to have? I would say that uh, it was more uh, the latter. And in part of that part, it was because we had put so much effort into making sure that we knew what we were doing. So our, our cabling expertise, our, our server stacking expertise, our, uh, our, battery, our battery and uh, generator expertise, even in our own facility, had gotten to the point where we were working at a fairly high level. The problem is that having to maintain our own staff to do all that stuff and do it right, uh, it wasn't very uh, efficient. And so, uh, and we were, it ended up making us focus on the wrong things. So when I walked into the first tier one facility, my first inclination was, wow, you know, my guys who have done all this research to make sure that we were doing things right on our own did a really good job. That being said, when I've started to tour a lot of the crazy modern facilities, when it comes to simply security, I'm blown away. Like one Wilshire um, down in uh, Los Angeles uh, their security is absolutely impressive, and that surprises the heck out of me. Yeah, what I mean, have, having been through so many different facilities, what is uh, what is one of the more impressive or most impressive data centers that you've been through? I loved going through Switch's SuperNAP. In fact, I took a legislative tour through SuperNAP. I brought uh, Senator Wyden and Senators Senator Moran Moran's staff through Switch's SuperNAP during uh, CES. Right? In Las Vegas, in Las Vegas. Um, and I think the fact that they had to have an armed guard uh, with a M16 walk alongside us to make sure that we weren't touching anything the whole time. I don't know whether it was theatrics or not, uh, but it was a little bit uh, impressive, but intimidating. Yeah, what's funny is I, uh, I've been through that facility, I think, two or three times now. And I'd like to tell people that if you go to Vegas and you're a geek, you can, you know, you can go to Vegas and you can go to the Michael Jackson show. You can go see Cirque du Soleil. You can, you know, ride the roller coasters or you could go to the data center show and go to the Supernat. <laughs> Super because they literally they put a production on and they're very intentional about it uh, and the theatrics about it. And from from what I've been told and. Uh, I may cause some controversy here, but from what I've been told, the uh, the security guards who are there are intimidating. I mean, they definitely look like they can mess you up on a moment's notice. Uh, but from what I've been told, those guns are actually not even loaded. For liability reasons, they, they can't be loaded. They keep the ammo stored in a separate locked location so that if they do need it, they can't get to it. But that they... Uh, they definitely look intimidating and they're definitely there for show, but it go, just goes to show, right? How, how the presentation is so important because if you don't really understand exactly what it is that you're looking at, you're going to walk through a facility like that and think that you're going through a Fort Knox. Um, when the reality is, as you know, and I know if someone really wants to break into your data and get access to your data, they're not going to drive a Mack truck through the wall of a data center or, 
um, you know, bring, I, I heard one story in Chicago years ago where people, a former security guard for a data center company actually came in and uh, unfortunately shot two security guards and killed two security guards. And he used to be a security guard, but they brought chainsaws and basically got through the security in the data center by literally taking chainsaws to the walls um, and getting access to a bunch of really large storage devices that they may have sold in the black market. But um, yeah, so le- less than, I think it's like less than 0. 000001, uh thefts within data centers and data loss comes from um, people actually physically stealing servers that it comes through the network. So my point being the data center show is impressive and I'm in no way saying that it's not an impressive data center. I just think that in, it's not the right fit for all cases, for all, for all use cases in the data center. Right. Yeah. But you know, between them and BioWest down in Vegas, that uh, they want that show, especially because it fits the aesthetic of, of the casino type environment. Right in Vegas, yeah, that's that's interesting. I appreciate the uh, the answer there. So w- one of the other questions I have for you is how growing up, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you today? I would think that you're early forties, right? I turned forty in December. All right. So you are just a couple years older than me. So I was born in 1980 and I, I grew up with my grandfather. I always remember my grandfather having like one of the first cell phones in his car. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely had a Atari. I definitely had one of my dad's IBMs that he brought home from work. But what was, what was your experience growing up around technology? I was a little bit of an Apple obsessive from day one. So I had my Apple IIe and then Apple IIc, uh, followed everything that Apple did, uh, had a Macintosh and, and uh, you know, learned to code in basic. I wouldn't say that I was an uber geek interested in all aspects of technology, um, but I liked the fact that uh, Apple's products gave us these tools that made it so that everything could, uh, in life, could sort of function more easily. And so it was that sort of populist aspect that was really appealing to me as far as technology goes. I've always sort of wanted to be a guy that like could find a way to change the world. And what's funny is that when Reed convinced me to, you know, help start help start a web hosting company, I sort of said to myself like, uh, I'll give it a couple of years, uh, but I don't really want to get into, you know, geeky tech stuff. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it, but it'll be a good experience right out of the college. Um, turns out that this is a great place to, to change the world. This is a great environment to put tools into the hands of people that can do amazing things with them. And I do feel like I'm making a huge difference even before my policy days when I was doing web hosting and enabling uh, you know, people with ideas to bring them to bear. Like I felt like I was making a huge difference in the world. And I'm like, oh, wow, I found it calling. And when I think back to like my days of early technology, it's the same aesthetic that uh, drew me to Apple products very early on. So I take it you're still using using Apple products. Yeah, but you know, I'm not the super fanboy that I was like 10 years ago. In part because I don't feel like they really like need all that many extra fanboys these days. So getting back on on to the data center thread, I'm curious. What is when you first started getting into the world of of hosting and and data centers? What is a a piece of information that blew your mind as you as you, like one of the early pieces of knowledge that you gained about our industry that just opened opened your eyes? And I'll give you a 
a uh, at least my story. And I just spoke about this recently when I was interviewing one of my first bosses, uh, Richard Donaldson, who's now one of the head infrastructure guys at, at eBay. Uh, but he was my boss over at a hosting company and data center reselling company, United Layer, out of the 200 Paul Data Center South San Francisco. And he taught me what a trace route was. And it was simply going into my command DOS interface and doing a trace route that literally light bulbs just started going off all over the place in my head. And I can, to this day, close my eyes and vividly remember exactly where I was in that moment in time. Um, was there, Did you have an, a similar experience to that? Actually, I, I, have, I feel like I have a ton of experiences, uh, a, a bunch of little eureka moments that have sort of come uh, throughout my, uh, throughout my career. And it's one of the reasons why I like to go explain things to legislators is because I want to give them those little eureka moments. Um, a lot of it has to do with like data flows. You know, um, I remember, uh, the very first time I got a copy of Boardwatch magazine, um, the magazine that was for BBSs that ended up, uh, starting to publish, uh, tier one network maps um, that showed basically how uh, terrestrial and cross-oceanic cables were run and where all the peering points were so that people could trade traffic. And they started like showing uh, descriptions of peering traffic centers. And I said, oh my God, this is how all this stuff interconnects. These, these are actual places that you can go to where my data is flowing through. Now I get it. Yeah, powerful stuff, man. I, I remember seeing a similar map for, uh, I think, uh, God, who was it, Pac PacNet? Um, yep. They had one of those up in their office, which was one of the first meetings I took when I was at United Layer, just getting into the industry and walked into their office and saw one of those maps and quite literally had that exact conversation. So this is, there's literally fiber optic cable in the ocean? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, what's funny is years later, I was at the, uh, it's actually going on this week. So when you guys are all listening, it's going to actually be a couple of weeks prior. Um, but it's called the uh, Pacific, uh, God, what is it called? Uh, I'll think of it later and put it in the show notes. But it's a big conference in Honolulu where all of the internet service providers and data center companies and a lot of large hosting companies and they send their executives there's so many decisions that are made and, and meetings that are had and whatnot um out in the out in honolulu and i was there meeting with a woman who worked for one of the companies that laid the trans trans-pacific transatlantic and all just oceanic fiber and she was talking me through the physics of how the speed of light works within a fiber optic cable, you know, a mile down or a half a mile down in, in the ocean, right? And how um, you can't have you can't have that fiber optic cable going over large, basically crevices within the ocean floor. It has to actually be like on the oceanic floor uh -huh. because. For, yeah, I don't even remember off the top of my head, but there was some, something to do with the, the laws of physics made it such that it would create distortion and too much latency and packet loss such that th the best way uh, to lay the fiber is actually to have it sitting on the floor. So you have to actually have detailed fiber maps uh, or not fiber maps, but maps of the ocean floor to know where the fiber should sit so that you don't have it laying across any big 
um, there's a name, abysses, right? Um, mm-hmm. On the oceanic floor. But it, that was another one of those moments where I was just blown away with uh, just how deep the knowledge and technology goes in our space. And that if you really, you could spend years and years learning just as you have and I have, right? And I still right. I still know more information that I don't know about my industry than I've learned in the last 12 years working in the space, right? Absolutely. So I think you're talking about PTC. And I almost went to PTC a couple yes, of years ago. Yep, um, yep. So I, but there's an interesting story about, uh, about me not going to PTC because I had plans to go out there to visit uh, a, my, to, to meet with uh, servants at the time, uh, probably still, uh, primary bandwidth provider, uh, 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 transit provider, um, PCCW. Um, mm-hmm. We were going to meet with them there. Uh, and we were talking to the, our friends at PCCW and they were talking about how each year right before PTC, they also um, meet at headquarters for a big, um, a big uh, Chinese New Year celebration. And I said, well, I want to go to that instead. <laughs> and so they invited us out to Hong Kong uh, for the Chinese New Year celebration. And that was so much more fun than going to PTC. I'm sure PTC is great. Uh, but we absolutely loved hanging out with the uh, PCCW guys there. The reason that we developed such a close relationship with PCCW, which is a Hong Kong-based uh, telco, uh, is that Servant was uh, basically their original U.S. customer. Um, remember I said that we had a 10-meg drop, um, and that's basically why we chose the place that we did for our little uh, office data center um, analog um, that was from a company called Case Internet Services, C-A-I-S. Well, Case ended up getting bought by a company called Ardent, which ended up being bought by another company whose name I can't recall at the moment. Oh, by BTN, uh, who ended up being bought by PCCW. Um, so <laughs> we had been with, uh, with Case since the very beginning, since 1995. Uh, so I guess officially, well before PCCW actually had a broadband uh, customer, in, in the States, uh, because they didn't have yet a company, uh, footprint at all. You know, we were their we were their first customer. Um, it was really cool to hang out with them in, in, uh, Hong Kong for Chinese New Year. Cool. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been to PTC, I think three times now. And every time it just blows my, what blows my mind. Having been to numerous different conferences, I found that that conference was the most productive out of all of them. Uh, having a meeting with someone while you're in your shorts, literally standing in the ocean, you know, <laughs> watching waves roll in and dolphins out, quite like having having that kind of a meeting. <laughs> wow! Um, I'm sure you wish you could have more of your meetings in DC in similar context, right? Yeah, no kidding. So, where where did you grow up? I grew up in Western New York, um, near Buffalo, New York. It was very Rust Belt. Did you have a any kind of motive, like in high school or even prior to that, were you starting to play around with the different uh, computers that the schools were starting to to install and, and implement? Like, how, how did you get your hands on your first Mac? Uh, my mom was in education, and so she brought home. Uh, she would bring home her uh, computers over the over the summer. And I would end up playing with them over the summer, um, which was awesome. So I got to become a geek that way. Uh, and uh, it was really neat because I would 
uh, call up on those BBSs, use CompuServe and things like that to dial, you know, faraway places. Uh, get some early tastes of internet connectivity that way. Right on. I'm uh, I'm somewhat ashamed to admit that when I was, I think, a freshman in high school, I was so desperately wanting to get onto the internet uh, that I, when, when my whole family was gone and I was home alone, I was trying to plug the phone jack into the back of the uh, heart, the the desktop because um, it, it had you know it had a jack for it and I just couldn't I couldn't get it to work and it just pissed me off to no end. I was like this, I think this is what I do to get onto the internet. And I, I went <laughs> to school on that like Monday following, and I went straight to the chess club. Which, funny enough, I became pretty good friends with the chess club after this and actually joined the chess club um, as a result of this. But I talked to these guys and I was like, look, you guys must know how to get online. Like, I'm trying to get online. Here's what I did. And of course, they all laughed at me and they're like, oh, you need a modem. And I was like, what the hell is a modem? Explain to me what a modem is. And they explained to me. And from there, I went home and I was like, mom, I need a modem. Here's exactly what I need, blah, 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 blah. But uh, I will always remember. <laughs> remember that moment in my life when I was a freshman. I, I had a PC. I knew how to use a PC. It was pretty powerful using playing around with the DOS prop and the green screen on the IBM that, that my dad brought home. But, uh, you know, how the internet worked and what it was was totally foreign to me until I walked up to the chess club. It's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah. You know what's kind of cool is that these technologies that we're talking about that have changed our lives so much, they're new enough that the people that built them are still around to tell their stories. Yeah. So I've got to invite, I've got to meet all these really amazing people. Like I've, I've met Paul Michael Petrus who made the DNS. I've, I've met, uh, uh, um, I've, uh, I've met, uh, Dennis Hayes who created the Hayes modem. That's probably the modem that you had. <laughs> He's now yeah. become friends with him. Uh, Vint Cerf. Uh, and it's incredible. So actually I've, I've got a very, Interesting question. I've just started digging through the different questions that I, I had teed up for you. Um, if if people who are listening want to follow specific legislators uh, who are who you think are clued in and understand our industry and are making you know for the most part some wise decisions on our behalf, which specific congressmen and women uh, do you think people should be looking at and or supporting to that extent? So. Uh I have a lot of answers for that. Uh, we've got a, a friendlies list of people that we uh, stay very close with and connected with. Uh, I2 Coalition has each year given out awards to legislators who have been uh, particularly good on technology. And so far, we've given out um, seven of them. Um, but uh, if, since I've, I'm on the spot to pick two, I would say that... Uh, the guy who basically talked us through what we needed to do to make a difference with Pippa Sopa and who's been on the right side of a ton of issues, Ron Wyden, is definitely one to keep track of. Ron Wyden has you, been fantastic on our issues. R-O-N. Yeah. W-Y-D-E-N. He's a uh, Democrat from Oregon. And he's generally great on Internet issues. Is he a senator or a congressman? He's a senator. And then I'll go ahead and I will uh, name check another one of our award uh, recipients. I'll talk about uh, uh, Daryl Issa, who's a representative from California, a Republican representative from California, uh, tends to be very well aligned with us on tech issues and is getting a position of leadership 
uh, in this Congress to focus on internet issues. So engaging with him, hopefully, uh, in a bunch of areas that he's going to be with us on, is going to be very important, particularly right now, when he's in a position to really affect change. So outside of someone, clearly and obviously, as we've been stressing, joining the ITC and participating actively in the ITC, what are some other resources that you think are available for for maybe newcomers to the industry, but those who maybe already be in the industry that are just starting to realize that uh, there's there's other ways to influence what's going on in our space. Where can they go or where should they go to start to at least get a taste and an understanding of what's going on? Do you mean where should they go to find out resources for uh, legislative engagement or uh, where should they go just to learn about the the industry as a whole? Yeah, the industry as a whole, but more appropriately, like what bills actually matter for for our space and how are people positioning or thinking about those bills? So there's a ton of good resources that uh, that just talk about Internet freedom in general, that a whole bunch of different organizations uh, put out. Um, for instance, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They work on a lot of our issues uh, and they do a lot of good work. Um that is focused sort of uh, broadly on internet freedom. The thing is, and I could probably, you know, point you to four or five different organizations that we are probably aligned with uh, that do general internet freedom or internet policy work. I believe that we're the only organization that narrowly focuses on putting things in the context of data centers and people that reckon sex servers and data centers. So we are we are probably the best resource for the narrow niche of your um, of your listener. Beautiful. What is something that you've seen outside of Pippa and Sopa, which which you've mentioned, over the next couple months and years to come? Where do you think the big pushes are going to be? Like, wh- where should focus specifically our focus really be moving forward? Um, so, as a nation, or as an industry, let, let's put this in the context of, of our audience, but as our industry, like where should we be looking um, and what type of things should we be looking at from a congressional uh, legislative perspective? Sure. Um, well, there are lots of different answers to that question. Um, I, like I said, we are really still um, starting, we're just sort of trying to shape the Wild West into something that is going to. Uh, to last. And you know, when legislators don't even understand this stuff, uh, they're not going to get to a place where legislation has a final form for many, many, many years to come. If you take a look at legislation around healthcare or education or defense, you know, it is um, eons ahead of where we are in internet legislation. Um, so this stuff is going to continue to evolve, and we need to be there to be an active voice in this stuff uh, regarding um, cross-border data flows, government access to data, encryption. Uh, these are issues where we need to be a voice. One thing that I'm keeping a very close eye on this year is around cybersecurity. People don't like it when the Internet goes down. People don't like it when things get hacked. They shouldn't. There are positive ways and there are negative ways to deal with that. And I'm excited to be a part of the conversation about finding ways that we can have a government in a positive role helping deal with cybersecurity uh, in ways that are constructive for this industry. 
and I want to steer them clear of conversations that are potentially negative for this industry. Uh, one phrase that I'm going to be listening for constantly is a phrase called um, critical infrastructure. They just passed uh, a, a law last month about um, uh, voting systems being considered critical infrastructure. I understand that. After last year's uh, election, I completely understand that. Critical infrastructure is a term that has real legislative meaning in the United States. The railroads are critical infrastructure. We would not like to see the internet governed the way that the railroads would do with the same type of regulation. Um, we want to make sure that as conversations are had about how to protect our networks and how to protect our systems, uh, that they don't come prepackaged with so much um, legislative red tape uh, that it, it kills innovation and it kills competition. So is there is there truly a battle? I mean, are there private interests outside of government who are advocating for further regulation in in the industry, specifically the, the telecommunications and, and data center industry? Well, so in the telecom industry, and, are the AT&Ts and Verizons and Sprints and whatnot of the world trying to stifle that innovation and remain the, the only players in the space? Or what does that paradigm really look like? So uh, you know that uh, the topic of uh, net neutrality has been very hot over the past couple of years, and it's going to be hot again. There's going to be another round of talks about net neutrality. Uh, it tends to be that, that AT&T and Verizon and these organizations are at the opposite end of many of the people in the uh, internet space as far as what should happen. My big goal isn't to weigh in on that and you know go up against the telcos. Uh, my goal is to say that whatever happens at the last mile, as far as last mile regulation, doesn't happen to the rest of the stack. The rest of the stack, which is by its very nature, extremely competitive and open and innovative, we want to create an environment in which that is uh, that is sustained. Um, the reason that people will go ahead and say, but we need more regulation is because they're driven out of, uh, of fear of the unknown. Uh, they say, well, unless we regulate it, we can't be assured that there, uh, that there's good cybersecurity. Um, we can't be assured that if we need access to some data, we're going to be able to get it. So let me ask you a very targeted, interesting question as it relates to that. Do you do you believe that the government, let's just say the government agencies that deal with security, the NSA and CIA and FBI and, and related uh, entities don't currently have the access that they need either legally or illegally uh, to the to information that's traversing the internet? The answer is that I don't know, but that I, the fact that I don't know is a problem. Um, yeah. We are in a global industry and uh, it's easy for somebody to move their business with two clicks of a mouse. The more transparency we have about what is going on and how it is going on, the better we as providers can make the case uh, that we understand the privacy and security implications of what is in our data centers. Um, 
So one of the things that we do is we advocate heavily for transparency first and foremost when it comes to uh, when it comes to surveillance reform. There's a certain extent to which we can make the global case for uh, for privacy and security better simply by knowing, and we don't we don't often know. It's interesting. I I always found it funny, as I'm sure you. I don't know if funny is the right word, but I've been, since I got in the industry, and even before that, simply because of the nature of who I am and the questions that I ask and trying to understand systems and how things operate, um, the more I knew, the more I realized just how much everything was being watched all the time. And I vividly recall speaking with numerous of my friends trying to explain to them that paradigm. And they would always say, oh, Sean, you're just a conspiracy, you wacky conspiracy theorist. And then Edward Snowden comes out with the revelations that he had about how how our government actually is acting on a regular basis and working directly with the likes of the big telecommunication companies to access data. Um, and then everyone, it, it, it's funny, not everyone, but everyone, at least in my circle was like, oh, well, of course. And I was like, wait, wait a second. You were just calling me a lunatic <laughs> two years ago. And now you're saying, oh, well, of course, right? It, it would be an interesting study, I think. And they, I bet these studies have already been done. If anyone, any of our listeners know of this study, I would love to hear about it. Uh, but a study that's done on just how literate is the nation as when it comes to just how a how the basics of the infrastructure uh the digital infrastructure that supports their day-to-day life works but also how how much access both private companies and also public companies or public entities have to the data that we have on our cell phones on our laptops on phone calls whatever it might be um that would be interesting are you aware of anywhere that someone's done a study like that I've I've seen a few things. You know, one of the things that I like to point to um, that's most amusing to me uh, was simply a little USA Today uh, reader poll that asked people if they thought that the cloud was susceptible to weather. And 63% of, of, of uh, participants thought that it was. The fact that people don't understand this stuff is... Uh, is in part uh, because of the language that we use. The cloud seems ethereal. The World Wide Web, right? It doesn't feel like it's, you know, hard metal in data centers, in in, in big buildings uh, that people do, you know, concrete work on. Um, and it blows people's mind when they finally figure it out. But most people, most people definitely don't get it. Yeah. It, I mean, some IT people, unfortunately, don't even get it. I, I will always remember I was working at uh, QTS, Quality Technology Services, now QTS Realty Trust. And I even I even had at one point a IT manager on a tour make a statement to me that data centers, physical data centers will likely become obsolete because of the advent of cloud computing. And I looked at him, you know, obviously with my head cocked, asking him, like, what do you think cloud computing is? And he said, well, aren't you afraid that the data center industry is going to become obsolete? And I said, well, where do you think the data is going to sit? All of the data that is going to this quote unquote cloud is sitting on a server in a data center somewhere. And he stopped at that and he goes, oh, well, I guess you're right. And I was like, okay. Like very quickly understood who I was dealing with, right? And in the level of education of the person that I was dealing with. Um but it was just always shocking to me. And even when I do my training and no disrespect to it, some of the people who are new to the industry going through my training, I just find it interesting um, that in the trainings that I do, how 
you know, people could even be working in the telecommunications industry for a decade and then come into the data center world and think, oh, well, all data centers are created equal, A, um, and not really have a very clear understanding of the difference between um, what a data center is, what a cloud computing company is, um, or, you know, really believe that the Verizon Sprints uh, of the world are doing the same, serving the same function as a rack space or as a digital realty trust or, um, you know, the, the real estate investment trusts who just focus on these digital data center assets. But uh, my point being that I, without question, um, believe that there's a huge gap in knowledge, unfortunately, with the American public. And as you and I have had this lamented about this over drinks and dinners many times yeah. in the past, it's it's not just unique to our industry, right? The the financial and like how many people have financial literacy, right? Um, yeah. And really focusing on like, do you know how to balance a checkbook? Do you do you fully understand the context that you're you're wrapping your head around when you take on three hundred thousand dollars of student loans, um, and how that's going to affect the rest of your life, or balancing a checkbook, or whatever it might be. Um, anyway, it's we could probably lament on this for for a long time and get super depressed. But um, <laughs> what what are some of the positive things that you see happening in DC? Um, do you feel like Congressmen and women are actually getting a little bit more educated and smarter about the decisions that they're making related to our industry. Oh, definitely. There's more resources than there were when I first uh, stepped foot in the congressional building five years ago. No question about it. It's uh, back in the day, you had a very small self-selected group of people who wanted to educate themselves. And now it's a little bit of a badge of honor to, to know stuff about the internet uh, whereas five years ago, they had legislators proudly proclaiming, well, I'm not a geek, so I don't get any of this stuff and being proud of that. They're no longer proud of their ignorance. Uh, there is a program that a friend of mine recently started called um, the uh, Congressional Internet Fellowship, and they are actually getting money to uh, put tech-savvy people up there um, to basically be a resource for people when they have questions that are sitting there in the offices that can say, oh, well, I'll come over and explain that to you. Um, it's a small program. It's a pilot. Um, eventually, Congress needs to do its own hiring. They need to build their own expertise. But this, it's, a, it's one of the stopgaps that they're doing to augment the understanding that exists out there. We've done a lot of that, too. Our own education efforts uh, have, I think, put a big dent in things. I told you that I'm getting calls at, like, you know, 6 in the morning with people wanting to explain to me what an Internet exchange point is. That type of thing is awesome. Um, yeah. And I love the fact that we've built something uh, where, you know, when that tech staffer has a question, no matter when they're working on it, they think to contact us. Yeah, that's an awesome thing. And I know that's that was probably one of the original goals that you had when you set out to to do what you're doing. But the fact that that congressmen and women and staffers now know that they have a resource that they can tap that will give them a unbiased opinion on for, for the most part, unbiased opinion on on how and what uh, is happening in that space, I think, is phenomenal. And one of the big reasons why I'm going to continue to to support you and everything that you do, Christian. Um, and I would also like to think that because there's, you know, a new generation of younger people 
both running for Congress and also working as staffers, uh, that this newer generation that's been so involved with tech at such a young age, that hopefully they would have a little bit more understanding of how and how it's affecting day-to-day life, right? I've seen that too. Some of them, uh, some of the new staffers that are coming in, they've got a clue. They, many of them have tech backgrounds. It's exciting. So if you, if you had one thing that you could say to, to this audience of you know, data center industry professionals, what, what would you want to tell them right now? So you're, you're in a room with 2,000 data center industry professionals. What, what specific topic or, or point would you want to get across to them? Well, I'm going to focus on the point that we've spent most of the podcast talking about, and that is legislative engagement. You know, what's interesting is that the very first companies that got involved with the Internet Infrastructure Coalition uh, were the web hosting providers because they were on the hot seat for for Pippa and SOPA. Uh, and then the registries and registrars, because they have been in the hot seat uh, legislatively on a number of different initiatives that we've been dealing with uh, around notice and takedown and government access to data. Uh, if you, as a data center operator, have not felt the heat of uh, legislation and regulatory issues surrounding internet issues, you will. And just as they have seen, it will have the potential of being business disruptive, uh, a business disruptive thing. So getting involved in these sorts of things now, being a part of it, not only is going to make sure that these that the right things uh, can ha- will happen and, not, and the wrong things won't happen, but it will also put you at the forefront of being seen as one of the internet's good guys and part of a community that's really trying to make a difference. Uh, crazy industry. So last but not least, my friend, how, how can people engage with, with you and the I2C and, and you know, if there are any other organizations that you, that you think would be worth checking out that you mentioned, like the, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And send me an email after this, by the way, because I can also add that to the show notes, the different organizations and websites for people to check out. But how can people specifically reach out to you who might be listening right now? I am pretty easy to find. Uh, my name is Christian Dawson, uh, and my details are out there sort of everywhere. You can, you can reach out to me at christiandawson.com. You can go specifically to i2coalition.com, and you can find out information about uh, the Internet Infrastructure Coalition. We'll engage you really quickly and make sure that you have all the information necessary in order to make things happen. We'll also keep you apprised of cool new things, new initiatives that we've got going on. Uh, Sean, you and I are working on a really cool initiative that uh, we're going to try and be pushing forward in 2017 around trying to build specific technical lessons specifically designed for legislators on a number of the different uh, types of ways in which legislators and regulators need to understand the Internet. That's called the Digital Education Institute. We'll uh, put a go ahead. I would like to put a... Uh, a link to that as well in the list of resources that you put into that. And as that develops further, we can update uh, anybody who reaches out on that as well. Most definitely. And to the, um, to the reality that we're going to be doing this and, and launching this and releasing these on a regular basis as different topics pop up in the industry that are noteworthy and that we need to start pounding the drumbeat around, uh, we will definitely be doing further, further, 
information sessions and, and reaching this out or spreading this out to the community. So stay tuned for, for more conversations between Christian and myself. Definitely check the show notes for the links that we mentioned. Uh, I hope this was good for you, Christian, and it was uh, very informative for me. Uh, and I, I love you, man. I appreciate everything that you're doing in DC. Please fight in the good fight. Keep fighting the good fight. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for doing everything you do, Sean. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. Thank you, man. We'll talk soon. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.